and welcome to Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm Aranya Kalik. I'm here with my co-host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey. And today, Kevin and I are super excited to have Dar Jamal, a staff reporter for Truth Out, uh, on to talk with us about his recent reporting on what's going on in Fallujah, in Iraq, uh, which the U.S. mainstream media has uh, reported very, very little about. So thank you so much for coming on to speak with us, Dar. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I guess let's just start by, um, could you talk about what's going on in Fallujah right now? Yes, it, it, it's, you know, the, the, the context that kind of led to the situation began over a year ago, but essentially um, it, with the current... Is, present situation is uh, a little bit over a month ago, the Iraqi government began shelling uh, the city of Fallujah. They circled it off and they, they, they claimed that the city had been taken control of by ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, uh, a group that was affiliated with uh, al-Qaeda, that they had taken control of the city. Uh, and, and reality is, while ISIS did have a small presence within the city, the city remained largely under control of the tribes in the area and, of course, the people living in the city. And so uh, they, were, they were trying to deal with the situation themselves. Uh, they did not want those people present in the city either. But nevertheless, the Maliki government started, uh, uh, sealed off the city, uh, stopped medical supplies from being allowed and started shelling the city. And uh, as of just a few days ago, according to doctors that I interviewed in the city, there were uh, uh, 109 civilians that had been killed and 632 wounded, including uh, uh, several dozen uh, women and children killed and wounded. So it's, it's a crisis situation. It's ongoing. It's displaced about 300,000 people around Al-Anbar province. Uh, the UN has called for an end of what the, the Maliki government is doing, as have other uh, NGOs operating in the areas. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it is ongoing as we speak. And for listeners who are unfamiliar uh, with Fallujah and uh, and its, his its history, its recent history, could you talk about um, what happened in 2004 with the U.S. military and the parallels between that uh, siege of Fallujah and then what the Iraqi government is doing now? Yes, that's. I'm glad that you brought that up because it's there's striking striking resemblances of 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 what what happened in 2004 when, you know, keeping in mind what I just described with ISIS and the Maliki government and, and the Maliki government using ISIS as the pretext to basically seal off and, and attack the city and, and, and engage in collective punishment. Back in 2004, the, uh, the uh, Bush administration, again, under the pretext of, well, uh, terrorists and al-Qaeda had taken control of Fallujah, and so now we need to go in and clear the city out. And reality was the people of Fallujah simply did not want to be occupied and had up until that point effectively pushed the U.S. military out of the city. And so in April of 2004, the uh, Bush administration decided, okay, we're going to go in and take control of the city. They launched a siege uh, that failed because there was enough media exposure of the rampant killing of civilians happening by the U.S. military that, that they were forced to stop. Um, they then kept the city uh, relatively uh, sealed off until November, about six months later. They waited until just after the presidential election in the United States took place 
And then once it was clear that Bush maintained office, on November 8th, they launched the second siege of the city, which essentially leveled better, a better part of the city, uh, um, something like uh, 60% of all the buildings in the city received some form of damage or were completely destroyed. And one Iraqi NGO operating in the city estimated uh, upwards of 5,000 people had been killed. And again, that, that siege, much more similar to the current situation in that the, the Bush administration tried to portray the situation as literally a hostage intervention uh, uh, operation that they claimed that a Jordanian terrorist, Abu, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, had taken control of the city and that what the U.S. military was doing was trying to liberate the people of Fallujah, despite the fact that to date there's never been any evidence presented that that man ever took, uh, took a step inside of Fallujah. And everyone I talked with inside the city said, yeah, that was just nonsense. Uh, we've never even heard of the guy. Uh, once again, it was just the, the people of Fallujah trying to defend their city against uh, uh, what they saw was a, a foreign occupier. Dar, what, what can you say about the current influence or presence of the United States? I know you, you, you told me when we were preparing for the interview there's, there's no U.S. troops, but there's still contractors. And what is the status of, of arms sales in possibly uh, making tensions worse? Yes, uh, there's, there's really kind of a, a, a behind-the-scene kind of soft power relationship now between the U.S. government and the, the Maliki government. I mean, we have to keep in mind that Maliki is – the prime minister, Nouri al-Maliki, is who the U.S. decided to – uh, keep as prime minister. I mean, this was a guy who actually had already lost an election against uh, uh, another opponent, but uh, because he was able to strong arm his way uh, into office in the first place and then stay in there despite having losing an election against the Yedlawi, uh because the U.S. wanted to keep him there. Uh, he was basically towing the U.S. line more than anybody else. Uh, but uh, bearing in mind that the U.S., uh, when they did pull out, they disassembled all their bases and they did pull out all the formal com combat troops. Uh, there, there might be a few U.S. military trainers remaining in, and guards remaining inside the green zone. But for the better part, it's, it's mostly uh, several thousand contractors la uh, left. It was 17,000 when the U.S. pulled out. Now it's down under 10,000 and continuing to dwindle. So that said, the main uh, way that the U.S. is, 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 is maintaining power and control uh, is that there's, there's, they've sold over $20 billion worth of arms to the Maliki government in the forms of helicopters, tanks, missiles, ammunition, communications equipment, and training, uh, as well as uh, it, when this Fallujah situation first sparked about six weeks ago, uh, if you remember, I believe it was back in January, the Obama administration put a rush on shipping uh, artillery, er, artillery equipment and missiles over to the Maliki government to again be used against the people of Fallujah. Um, Dar, I wanted to ask you about uh, how, well, you've done a lot of reporting on the, the astronomical rates of birth defects and rare cancers uh, in cities like Fallujah. Um, so I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about the U.S. role um, or the potential uh, U.S. responsibility for those high rates that I believe are 
that they, I believe rival in some cases the the rates we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki after uh, after uh, they were bombed uh, by the United States. Um, so. And also, could you, uh, when you've spoken to the doctors who I imagine are already stretched thin in Fallujah with all the health disparities they have to deal with, I mean, have you have, have they talked to you at all about um, how they're able to deal with those kinds of rare cancers when they're having trouble getting basic medical supplies in at the moment? Uh, absolutely. The, you know, I, I don't really think there's any question as to what caused these defects. Uh, the, the cancer rates in Fallujah have gone up astronomically since uh, the, both U.S. sieges in 2004. Uh, they had cancer rates on par with uh, average cancer rates throughout uh, the rest of Iraq, at least the rest of the parts of Iraq that hadn't been bombed during the 1991 uh, Bush, first Bush war on Iraq, and, and so much depleted uranium munitions were used then. Um, so, uh, but compared to the average baseline in Iraq, Fallujah was, was right there. And then uh, in 2004, during both U.S. sieges, there was massive amounts of depleted uranium uh, munitions, which is basically a low-grade radioactive weapon used across Fallujah. I've interviewed a lot of the U.S. soldiers engaged in both sieges that said, yeah, we used it. And we fired tank shells with it. We used lots of bullets with it from our guns, from helicopters, etc. And, uh, and then other toxic uh, weaponry like white phosphorus, which was, was well documented that it was used. And so uh, in the wake of that, from 2004 until the present day, we've seen a, a massive uptick in the rates of cancer and uh, congenital birth uh, defects in Fallujah. So I, I've been in there several times since both of those sieges. And most recently, uh, it, this past March, I went to Fallujah and I interviewed uh, Dr. Samira Alani. She's the uh, head pediatrician at uh, uh, Fallujah General Hospital. And she said, look, I, we don't get any support from the, the Ministry of Health. I am the only person here logging this. We don't have enough help. Uh, we're not getting any support from Baghdad again because the, the Maliki administration uh, is extremely sectarian and is basically not, not assisting Fallujah because it's an Al-Anbar province, which is primarily Sunni. Uh, but she said, I alone have doc I'm documenting between six and eight cases a day uh, of congenital birth defects. So she said, we're seeing things that there's literally not medical terminology to explain. And I saw a lot of these babies myself and a lot of the photos that she shared with me, and they're, they're really horrifying, just the most uh, horrible birth defects you can imagine. And uh, this is against the backdrop of cancer rates uh, in Fallujah uh, actually are, are more than 14 times what the cancer rates were in the immediate aftermath of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. So that gives you an idea of how extreme the situation there is. Uh, they do not have enough diagnostic equipment. She said, look, it's so bad that literally, uh, you know, we, we can't test people, but uh, more and more people are just becoming even too afraid to even have babies anymore. Um, and, and she said that, you know, it's, she's a one-person show trying to keep up with it, really uh, engaged in this Herculean task of, of logging as well as trying to help people uh, that are giving birth to, to babies that, that have these deformities. But it is, it is really one of the uh, kind of a, a lingering, ongoing war crime that I think is residual from the U.S. occupation there who absolutely bears responsibility. 
Dar, what about the uh, the, the re residual effects that continue to go throughout Iraq as a result of the occupation that involve uh, the fact that there are security forces that are torturing people. Um, you've got these high rates of, of, of rape, these reported instances of, of detentions, of people's rights being violated, basically. Uh, can you address that development? Yes, I've, I've written about this uh, quite a bit in the last year because the uh, the Maliki regime. I mean, uh, there's so many Iraqis now that are, are referring to Prime Minister Nouri al Maliki as basically a Shia Saddam. That he has he's a strong man. He's built his own private mukhabarat, his own private intelligence services. He has his own private uh, security forces and militias, uh, and uh, he runs his own string of prisons. And this has been well documented by Amnesty International as well as, well as other NGOs and, and human rights organizations. And there's so many people that uh, have uh, I've spoken with who've been in his prisons, uh, women who've told me point blank, yes, they were in there, they were raped several times, beaten, spit upon. I've interviewed men that, that said, yes, I, I, you know, they, they, he used uh, the Maliki prison personnel, they're using techniques, really awful methods of, of torture, like hanging people from their ankles while they electrocute them, um, um, splashing cold water on them while they electrocute them, beating people with metal pipes, uh, leather straps, things like this, um, um, bringing in uh, people's uh, relatives, female relatives, and raping them in front of them. I mean, really horrific, nightmarish torture methods. And uh, that in addition to going in and just raiding homes. So basically, uh, Maliki's been carrying out sectarian warfare against uh, Sunni, a lot of the Sunni population of Iraq. And that is what people in Anbar province started demonstrating about every Friday from December of 2012 up until now. And that those demonstrations and the demands that these people were making for Basic human rights to be respected. Stop the detention. Stop the torturing. Stop targeting Sunnis uh, just because they're Sunnis. Those were those were the demands. And then when I was in Fallujah in this past March, I went to some of these demonstrations, and that's precisely what people were asking for. And instead of uh, meeting those demands, uh, uh, basically violence started breaking out across Anbar and in parts of Baghdad as a result of Maliki's strong arm tactics. And then, of course, the Maliki administration used that violence to justify going in and doing to Fallujah what they're doing right now. But, Dara, quick follow-up here. Isn't this something that uh, like General David Petraeus had embraced at, in Iraq? And doesn't the U.S. military leadership bear some responsibility for the fact that Iraq is using these tactics against Iraqis? Oh, absolutely. This is basically residual of, of fallout of U.S. policy during the occupation. Because I remember uh, when I was in Baghdad in 2004, when uh, uh, Zalmay Khalilzad decide, decided to, one of the neocon architects of the original, of, of the invasion plans, decided, okay, we're going to appoint uh, John Negroponte as U.S. ambassador to Iraq. And then Negroponte brought in a retired Colonel James Steele to uh, 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 run his security affairs. 
And uh, these are the same two guys that were impl- implicated, and this is well documented, uh, during the Reagan administration in Central America in the 1980s for setting up and running the death squads. Well, that is precisely what they did in Iraq. They, they organized, trained, and ran sectarian-based death squads, Shia death squads. They pulled them from the Badr Brigade Shia militia, uh, among others, and they started sending them out to do the dirty work to target the Sunni because it was the Sunni who were conducting most of the violent opposition to the U.S. occupation. So once the U.S. pulled out, What's left is that whole apparatus of these sectarian death squads that is basically still running around targeting Sunnis. And that is, again, very critical context to remember when we talk about and when we look at what's happening in Iraq today. It explains a lot. It's why there is this really broad Shia-Sunni divide that never existed like this before the U.S. occupation. And it's really now what's tearing the country to pieces. On that note, Dar, I want to ask you... um because everything you're talking about is the kind of context that's often missing in reports about Iraq, and at least in in, uh, in the mainstream establishment U.S. press, it's always portrayed as, you know, this sectarian the sectarian violence is is fueling everything. It's just this, you know, these sectarian divisions, and and we never hear about the sort of underlying uh, reasons that you just laid out. So, I mean, is there? Are there particular outlets or particular reporters, other than yourself, obviously, that that you can point listeners to uh, to get that kind of information? Or is it just kind of being ignored uh, overall? Well, now, I mean, in in the past, it was easier. There there were several people writing about it. But now, you know, unfortunately, since the U.S. has left Iraq, uh, most people have have stopped reporting on it and most people have stopped reading it. But uh, from time to time, you will see something good from John Pilger or Robert Fisk, who will still circle back around and write about uh, the, the sectarian issue in Iraq and, and some of the things that I just spoke of, as well as how it used to be in Iraq before the occupation, the fact that uh, there wasn't this huge Sunni-Shia divide that, in fact, uh, Iraqis grew up in neighborhoods and never knew if their neighborhood neighbor was Sunni or Shia. It just wasn't an issue. Like the sectarianism was was brought in by the American tanks. That's what I heard early on in the occupation. So, uh, But it is increasingly difficult to find folks writing about anything about Iraq today because unfortunately, uh, like I said, uh, most readership, at least in the West, is uh, they just they don't, they don't it's like the dirty little secret nobody really wants to talk about it anymore even though it's this huge festering disaster but dar you've talked to people who fought in the iraq war does this get to the the main issue and i sort of saw this when things were blowing up last year that a lot of soldiers are having to confront this reality that the country was made worse by the united states very much so, yeah, and and there's still several veterans that are that are very active in 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 being vocal about what's going on and the 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 legacy that they left. I mean, one individual I know personally, Ross Caputi, who took part in the November 2004 siege of Fallujah, and uh, actually less less than two months ago had an excellent. Uh, article in the Guardian condemning what was going on because he he felt morally responsible for creating the conditions that that led to what what uh, the situation is 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 in Iraq today. Uh, so there there are many that are racked with guilt and and struggling with that as well as having to cope with the fact that 
you know, they, they went over there and did horrible things themselves and had friends uh, killed or, or, or wounded and then come back and realize, guess what? It was all for nothing. It was all just so that certain private U.S. and other Western companies could go in there and make a whole lot of money in a short amount of time. And that's why when you look at the plight of the veterans, which is ongoing, and we have more veterans killing themselves today than are dying overseas in any kind of combat operations, and that's been the case for years now, which is a stunning statistic. But that's why, you know, when you hear about these the, the massive incidents of post-traumatic stress disorder and suicides and alcohol and drug addiction and all these other myriad problems facing U.S. vets when they come home. I mean, that's what it is. It's essentially untreated PTSD that these these folks aren't getting the support they need from the government, from the VA to deal psychologically and oftentimes physically, uh, but to deal psychologically with with uh, what they've been through and what they created and and, you know, how do they live with that? Well, lots of crimes on top of another, it sounds like. Um, thank you so much, Star, for taking the time to speak with us. It's such an important story, uh, and you know we hope to continue having this conversation in the future. Um, and thank you again for your reporting. It's you know really vital. It's the only article I've seen that's this comprehensive at the moment on Fallujah. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for all the work you've done on this. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thank you both for having me. Thanks. Welcome back to the discussion portion of our show. That was a great interview. I'm so happy we had Adar Jumal on. I'm sorry if I mispronounced his name earlier. Uh, so yeah, we Kevin and I uh, were just talking off air about what we're ready to talk about on air, which is if anyone's you know been paying attention, I'm sure most of you have to what's been going on with RT, the Russia Today uh, news channel, with uh, two of their anchors, Abby Martin, uh, which hosts a show called Breaking the Set, and if you don't watch it, you should. Full disclosure, Abby's a friend of mine, so, you know, um, I like her. (laughs) But she's also really, really great at what she does, and she came uh, on her show, I believe it was on Monday evening, she came out and said that um, at the end of her show, that she is, uh, you know, she she's aware of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, and she's aware that you know her network is biased towards Russia. But she, you know, has editorial uh, and journalistic independence on her show, and she is adamantly against this military, which you know, what she called military aggression. Uh, and she's, you know, not going to pretend otherwise or whitewash anything just because of where she works. And it was really, really powerful. Uh, and then two days later. Uh, one of RT's anchors, who I do know, but not that well, uh, Liz Wall, she uh, basically anchors this like 30 minute news segment, um, I think in the evening, uh, early evening. And she basically resigned on air, um, saying that she can't work for a news organization that whitewashes, uh, that whitewashes the actions of Putin and Russia and she, uh, and so yeah, she resigned on air and it like made, you know, big headlines and both of them, both Abby and Liz appeared on multi- or well, they both appeared, appeared on Piers Morgan last night, but they, but then Liz appeared on multiple programs, uh, and has received far more attention. I, I think from what I've seen than Abby has. And in fact, Abby was actually smeared after, uh, she, after, after she came out, 
you know, against the against the Russian invasion of Crimea. And so she was smeared uh, by a New York Times journalist who went and like dug up some video from like eight years ago of her asking questions about 9-11. And he was like, oh, she's a 9-11 truther. And so like all of a sudden everybody started saying, oh, she's a 9-11 truther. And you wrote a little bit about that, Kevin. The, 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 uh, The comparison, the contrast between the way the the media treated Abby and then Liz is so different. And a lot of that, I believe, has to do with Abby is a very outspoken against imperialism, regardless of who it's coming from, but most adamantly against U.S. imperialism because she lives in the U.S. and her program targets a U.S. audience. Uh, And she's very anti-war, whereas Liz, uh, I mean, she's not as opinionated because she's just straight a straight news anchor or was a straight news anchor. Right. Liz is not even like not nearly as opinionated. In fact, we don't know where she stands on most issues, except for uh, from what she said. It seems like she's been in favor of a couple interventions in the past, like with France and Mali uh, last year. Uh, and yeah, I just said I, I, it's it's very the contrast is so interesting. And you wrote at length about this, Kevin. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of your observations? Well, so the one thing is just to quote. Abby, because I think it was really powerful how she said, I can't stress enough how strongly I am against any state intervention in a sovereign nation's affairs. What Russia did is wrong. And I thought if if we back it up and and we're going to go back to when this all started and you have the day after and Glenn Greenwald wrote about this at The Intercept and it got a lot of attention through his posting and then... Uh, this video started to make its way uh, to other outlets who made decisions to write about it. You have this New York Times reporter, Robert Mackey, who runs the lead blog, the news blog at the New York Times. And he decides that uh, this isn't a good thing for someone at RT to be getting uh, praise. I actually believe this to be true. This is, this is my he, opinion. He doesn't, he, doesn't actually, he doesn't actually say this. Right. But he but it's basically uh, he claims that he was just doing he just did this. He wrote about this to provide context that he has no like this wasn't his opinion and he wasn't trying to make Abby look bad. It's just people should know that she had these questionable views about 9-11 in the past because somehow that connects to her views on Crimea. But so so incoherently, he says that she has a belief that false flag attacks are common, including 9-11 which helps explain her dismay at Crimea moves. This is what he tweeted at me when I, when I confronted him. And, you know, I think you and, and some other people, we were trying to figure out what he's talking about because uh, right, a basic you- understanding of false flag attacks is that that's not what Russia is doing right. in Crimea. <laughs> so, but also it's really unfair to Abby, it's it's a sort of psychoanalysis to say no. It's 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 like he's in her head. Like he thinks he's in her head to say no. It's not because she's against interventions. It's because she's got this weird conspiracy crank fixation on false flag attacks. And and I need to you know so and then he's taking it upon himself to let people know that they should understand that the reason she took a stand is not just because she's got journalistic independence. And this is this was critical. This is something that I uncovered in looking at his piece, mm-hmm. is that when she had talked about false flag attacks, he put in his own post that, um, well, she had only focused on American false flag attacks. 
So maybe she's not really independent. Maybe she right. does toe the line most of the time. Well, that's another thing is I, I think that it's it's important to stress that with Abby, I mean, if you haven't watched her show, I mean, she is like the opposite of a neocon. She is, I mean, her views line up much more. Like, I mean, I would say that for the most part, her views line up with ours uh, when it comes to foreign policy, at least, and probably most things. Uh, and And she... Uh, is very outspoken about that kind of stuff. And she does, neocons do not like her uh, because of that, as they don't like us. <laughs> uh, and by neocons, I mean this neocon cable, what I like to call a neocon cable of journalists in D.C., because that is what it is, of the Eli Lakes and Rosie Grays and James Kerchicks. Um, the people from the Daily Beast and BuzzFeed who cover foreign policy are most almost always almost exclusively uh, right from what seems to be a, a clear neocon perspective. And so, yeah, these types of people do not like Abby. So they jumped on this. And and and, and well, you know, and immediately after Abby did this, uh, a lot of media outlets were so excited. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, journalists were kind of praising her. She received a lot of praise because, you know, if you've watched or read about the coverage Russia today, or RT has been um, has been providing about the crisis in Crimea and Ukraine. It's been very biased. And one thing I really liked that Abby pointed out when she was on, and let me find this. I you know I really, I don't want to paraphrase. I want to actually quote her when she was on Piers Morgan last night. Is she said um, talking about like how you know she admitted, of course, Russia today, of course, RT is is bias. It's it's talking, it's telling the story from a Russian perspective. Of course it's bias. But at the same time, uh she says hang on, I really I do want to find I have it right here. Okay, so she says RT toes the perspective of Russian foreign policy just as US media toes the perspective of US of the US foreign policy establishment. And I thought that that was really powerful because yeah, like RT doesn't, and RT doesn't pretend to be otherwise. I mean, it's freaking, it's called Russia Today. Um, they're yeah. not shy about that. And then, you know, Sam Knight, a friend of ours, who's also a journalist, uh, like interned for... Uh, he didn't intern. Oh, he, he didn't was. intern. Oh, wait, 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 I'm sorry. Just <laughs> he was a segment producer for Alona Minkowski's show when she was a host there, and now she's with Huffington Post Live. Right, and actually Abby uh, is took over Alona's, um, Alona's, a TV spot when Alona went to Huffington Post. But so yeah, he he worked for Alona's show and so he does this interview and I can't remember exactly what post it's from but I quoted him what what outlet it was with but it was it's really worth National reading. Journal. Yeah, the National Journal. It's really funny uh in typical Sam Knight fashion. But yeah, he says um about speaking about the uh the US media and the way they've handled this whole uh this whole RT situation, he says, the corporate media is staffed with fleshy bags of walking sycophancy and these stories about RT reek of projection and insecurity. And then at the end, he asks something along the lines of, RT, uh, RT is a state-run media outlet. What's your excuse? <laughs> like, yeah, What are these jingoistic American hacks excuses? Right, exactly. And I think that's a really good point is, you know what? It's true. Like, and, and we're not praising RT for being biased or one-sided, but at least they're honest about it. At least, like, they're upfront about what you know where they're where they're coming from. Whereas, and this is something that you bring up really well in the post that you just wrote that I was reading, Kevin. Um, and you can talk more about this. But whereas, like, corporate media outlets never talk about where you know who's funding them or you know what their um, what their 
uh, what their bosses, you know, uh, expect them not to talk about. Uh, and, you know, in the case of CNN, I didn't even know this until I just read your post, but apparently CNN received some funding from uh, some repressive regimes. And because of it, that's affected their reporting. Yeah. Uh, so just before we get too specific, some general points that I that I want to make related to what you're talking about, because I think what's fascinating in watching this de- debate unfold is that you have these media pundits or these U.S. media journalists who are suggesting through the way that they are criticizing RT, it's implicit, they're suggesting that this sort of self-censorship in the workplace doesn't occur at their outlet, Mm. which I think is very hard for, I think, anybody to argue. But then again, I guess you do also have to make the point that you wouldn't Uh, know that you were in this position where you had to make a decision on whether to censor yourself if you were not acting independently, you know, just which is to say that if you are not engaging or trying to engage in independent journalism, then you're not going to know whether you can act independently when you're working for the management that runs your news organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if some of these people like Piers Morgan who say they've never been asked to censor because of advertisers is that because they haven't ever covered right. any of these significant issues that would create that kind of a, of a, of a tension. And, uh, and so I think that there's that. So then, but, but we know that Russia is, is funding the uh, RT. We do not know exactly all the time who are the funders of these corporate media outlets. Um, and we do not know what are the behind-the-scenes discussions that are ongoing where you would have uh, possible repressive regimes that are influencing the coverage. And so Amber, Amber Lyon was this reporter for CNN, and she was tasked with going to Bahrain to make a documentary when the Arab Spring was uh, – when that was happening and was to make a whole hour documentary that could air on the use of social media and the use of technology by the so-called democracy activists, as, as people usually refer to them. And when that was to air on CNN International, they actually did not broadcast it. Uh, and CNN was under tremendous pressure from the Bahrain regime to to basically repeat propaganda coming from the Bahraini government, from the Bahraini regime. And so, uh, you know, that gets into this issue of, of us not really knowing what are the pressures internally for these media organizations when uh, you have U.S. allies, you know, extreme allies like Bahrain or an extreme ally like Saudi Arabia um, or, or, you know, countries that are very sensitive for the United States government, like Israel, you know, when you, you know, you know that these countries drive foreign policy to some degree and uh, you would want to be careful or, or advise media to be careful about what they're broadcasting. Mm. Oh, one thing I also wanted to point out before I forget is that the people who have been lauding. Okay. So let's move on for a second to the, um, the other, the anchor who quit on air, which was Liz Wall. 
Yeah. Uh, and so this was a little bit different because, like I said, Liz doesn't have is has not been as outspoken about her opinions on stuff. So like, there's there's less of a reason for neocons to jump at the chance to, uh, you know, to to uh, jump and jump on a smear campaign of her. Uh, she immediately, almost immediately after she resigned on air, uh, an article appeared at the Daily Beast by. Our good friend James Kerchick, uh, and I'm joking. He's not our good friend. Please don't misinterpret that. Um, and well, you're an exercise science. Oh uh, yeah, I, an exercise. I, I, James Kerchick is a, is is a, is crazy. Uh, let me just leave it at that. He tried to criticize me. He tried to smear me. He tried to smear me on Twitter because I majored in exercise science in college. Yes, I have a degree in exercise science. I, I was not always interested in journalism. Big deal. And he thinks that means that I was going to be a PE teacher. Not that there's anything wrong with gym teachers, by the way. Not at all. But that's not what exercise science is. So he doesn't even know what he's talking about. But moving on. It's, Sorry, better, it's better to peddle right-wing yeah. propaganda. Exactly. It's exactly, exactly, right? Uh, but yeah, that's besides the point in this stupid story to even bring up. But that's why he's a loser. Um, so Kerchick. Exactly. But he's he's also a total, he's also a, a hardcore neocon, uh, as, as, you know, demonstrated by his reporting over at the Daily Beast and other places like commentary. And so uh, this is something I didn't know. So Kerchick is the first to... To write about this, he called. I guess he called Liz up and like got the first exclusive with her to find out why she quit. And so, uh, when I I don't know about you, Kevin, but like I saw the video initially of her quitting, and I was like, okay, all right, so she's quitting, like standing up for herself, good for her. But I was a little taken aback by, uh, or a little repelled, I guess, when she was she like kind of put in these weird nationalistic sort of things in her speech, where she was like, I'm proud to be an American, and I was like, what? What does that have to do with you resigning? Like, it was just bizarre. And I, I was just kind of like, okay, I got like a weird feeling about that, like by that. Uh, and then later when I see this post by uh, James where she goes even further into it, I'm trying to bring up the post now. I'm sorry if I don't have it. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, the one thing that stood out to me is she's taken this opportunity when she was invited on these shows. And she she did. She went on Lawrence O'Donnell's The Last Word. She went on Piers. She was on Anderson Cooper. Uh, at least on Lawrence. I watched her appearance on Lawrence O'Donnell's program. And she did actually attack Abby Martin and oh, say... Oh, she did? And, and she did say that, well... You know, Abby, what she does fits into the sort of thing that RT really wants to do um, and, and sort of trying to suggest that um, the pressure might have been worse for her because Abby is doing something that the that RT wants to push. And, and the RT, um, because they play this anti-West uh sort of narrative where they push that that that's something that abby's really into is this anti-western imperialism and so that would be where abby would be completely okay in their view yeah so i'm not surprised she said that because i felt like she was like preparing to i could sense i look i don't know what's been said but i don't even know if they've talked about it face to face i they seem as far as i know they're they're friends they're friends who worked together um and will probably stay friends i'm sure it's nothing personal but to me it seems like uh liz okay look liz has been working at rt for a while now like a couple of years as far as i if i understand correctly or almost a couple of years right 
so I find it strange, and this is me personally, that she decided to resign uh, on air the way she did uh, two days after Abby did. Uh, and Abby received a lot of attention for it. Uh, and, you know, it's not, you know, and, and Liz, is an, uh, Liz is a smart person. She know, I'm sure she understands that what she did makes her very, very employable, especially with the things she said afterwards. And, you know, I'm sure maybe she agrees with those things. But with the things that she said afterwards that fall very much into the U.S. exception, like the American exceptionalism narrative, uh, yeah, I'm sure, I guarantee you in a, in a couple weeks or a month from now or maybe sooner, she will have a job at a mainstream outlet. I, I have no doubt about it. And so for her career, this was probably a good move, you know? Uh, and maybe she, I'm not saying that's why she resigned. Uh, I'm sure that's something, it sounds like she's been, you know, unhappy there for a while from the things that she said. But, you know, this was a good opportunity to do it in a way that would really advance her career. Any smart person would understand that, right? Uh, and, and so that's like, I, I, that's just like one thing right there where I, I do, cause like the, the RT made some statements saying they were, you know, what, she, you know, they wish her luck, whatever, but they were upset by what she did. Obviously they're going to say they're upset by what she did. Right. Uh, yeah. but they also mentioned that they believed, you know, they were like, this was a stunt, uh, to get attention. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that framing, but they did say something that, you know, I thought was noteworthy, which was that, you know, the, you know, in, in, in the editorial process, if you have a problem with your editor, you, or if you have a problem, you know, with the editors, you go speak to your producer and you speak to the editors about it. And if you can't resolve it, then you resign. And, and it seemed to suggest that she had never brought it up before. I don't know if that's the case or not, but, you know, just well, put it out there. So as we're concluding this discussion, there's some, some general points that I wanted to, to make before we uh, move on to the other things we're going to talk about. Uh, and, and just to say that uh, I think it's the, the bigger thing to take away from what has happened these past few days is that you know, the reason why there is a market for RT in this country is because there is such this failure of U.S. media. I think the one thing that people who work for p places like CNN, Fox News, NBC, MSNBC, these places where they do broadcasting, I think the one thing they can't admit is that they probably do lose quite a few viewers to RT because there are people in this country who do not think that those outlets are broadcasting the truth. And I think there's some merit to the fact that there are people who tune in. And I don't think you can oversimplify, I think it's rather complex. I think that with RT, at times, you do have that, uh, as I guess to use the word that Liz Wall is a fan of using, this Putinist <laughs> sort of, uh, that's that's a, the flavor to what you are, are, definitely if you're tuning into their Syria coverage. Oh or, yeah, their Syria coverage is terrible. But 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 other stuff. I mean, they are they are taking advantage of a void that is left by the fact that these outlets won't cover things like well, as I mentioned in my post, as I mentioned, they uh, aren't giving a lot of attention to the use of drones. You know, regular coverage to the fact that the government has claimed this power to target and kill Americans or non citizen non U.S. citizens abroad in places where. We, we are at war. And so, I mean, not to get into that discussion, but just to point that out. And then the other thing I want to raise here is just, you know, the media, a lot of them are like the inverse of RT. And here's just a, here's just a quick example. So Peter Hart at 
fairness and accuracy in reporting has this good post up called Putin's Delusions and Double Standards. And I just want to point out that there are media like the Washington Post, and you can also find this in the coverage that's going on in the broadcast news. They're spending a lot of time psychoanalyzing Vladimir Putin and suggesting that like his mental state may not be good. Is he going crazy? Uh, what is happening here? Um, and, and really suggesting that there isn't something rational to how he's handling the uh, the military presence that he's maintaining in uh, covertly in Crimea and how he's you know trying to figure out what his next move on the chessboard is going to be just like the state department's trying to figure out what their next move on the chessboard will be and it's just i think people need to admit that uh that the media here um may not be state funded but you know as i say it has a way of being influenced by the state and having things happen like uh, you know, people coming on and promoting these wild uh, sort of uh, foreign policy agenda type views. Or jail, then, jail Greg Greenwald immediately. Right. Those things or or it, it, to to say something that's a, a, a really sensational example is having military an- analysts come on who are favored by the Pentagon to push your country into war with Iraq and then afterwards to even um, try to maintain people's uh, support to to keep people focused in supporting the occupation of Iraq and and all the policies of the war on terrorism by having people who are approved by the Pentagon. That happens. It's, that's not well, yeah. The lead up to the Iraq War is like the best example of oh my god. I mean, it, when we look at a station like RT, it's like what Abby did. I think that was really really threatening to the to people like you know Robert Mackey and just the sort of mainstream elite journalists was the fact that what she did did not happen uh, in the United States in the lead up to the Iraq war. In fact, like the two news people, the two like on air anchors that said anything bad about the Iraq war were fired. Uh, right. Or one anchor, which was like Donahue yeah, was, Bill Donahue. was fired. And it was like, he had the highest rated show. And then another, another and like later on people admitted, I think, I, I can't remember which one was it um, from CNN, Dana Bash. Is that her name? I'm probably saying it wrong. I don't know. Well, I mean, there were anchors who later admitted that there was a lot of self-censorship because your job was on the line. And so it's like, yeah, these are the corporate media doesn't necessarily mean editorial freedom, I think, is the point here. And like you mentioned, yes, RT does fill this void uh, because they are are not because they are beholden to, I guess, like when it comes to foreign policy issues, they're clearly beholden to Russia, Russian interests, which is why you see the heart, like the abysmal Syria coverage. But at the same time, it does allow them this freedom to discuss things in the United States, like police brutality, like police militarization, like uh, spying on the Muslim community. You know, like these these stories that uh, whenever there's like a terrorist attack or or like the Boston bombing, it's like the the coverage you saw on RT was probably better than what you were seeing. No, it was better. I remember it was better than what you were seeing in the mainstream. And like, I'll say this is like a lot of my friends who are independent journalists, they don't ever get invited to talk about their really, really important stories in the mainstream US media, because those stories are not a priority because they do not fall within the, the tiny, uh, obsessive narrative that the U.S. is perfect and special and, you know, God. Uh, whereas, like, RT does invite them on. And again, I'm not saying RT is perfect. By no means is it perfect. And it, there are certainly problems over there, as you can tell. 
But I think that's definitely something to think about when you see these people you know, talking about it like it's this awful propaganda station as if they're any better working at their NBCs and CNNs. And one thing I want to end with on this from what I'll say is there was this really, really great, wonderful post by someone named Jay Pino. I've never, I'd never read his stuff before, but I came across his website last night when, by the way, uh, I, I, I do want to note, and I don't think, this, I personally don't think it's that important, but because Robert Mackey brought up Abby Martin's, like, questionable views in, like, the past, uh, around that same time in 2007, uh, it turns out that Liz Wall was interning for Fox News. So I don't know if Robert Mackey's going to write a post about that because and, and throw that, you know, <laughs> for extra context, as he liked to put it. Uh, but I just think it's interesting that hasn't been brought up at all. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I um, if it, and if, you know, if someone like Robert Mackey really did care about views in the past or what someone's done in the past uh, in relation to what they think about the Ukraine crisis, I think that's something he should absolutely write about. <laughs> um, but yeah. So this is... This is really personal for me. So I just want to establish that having covered extensively the trial of Chelsea Manning Uh, by the U.S. military, that there were outlets that could have invited me to come on air to cover this story. They knew I was one of five people out there. CNN actually sent their own person, so I can only I, I must limit my criticism to them to some extent. But uh, for all the outlets, I was available. Um, and who contacted me on a regular basis for coverage? It was actually RT. Um, and it was uh, to some, to, often I was contacted by Alona, who had taken a job at Huffington Post Live, but she only knew to contact me because she had had me on her program when she was working for RT. So that is not to say that RT is this this great, uh, incredible outlet, but but let's just admit that there are people who are doing very good work, oh, yeah. not just myself included, um, and not just me tooting my horn here, but just to say that there are many people who are being passed over and, and ignored. And the, and the last thing that I want to say is that Voice of America has outlets that are working in countries abroad in the same way that RT does. And I guess what people should think about when they're really offended by what, what Russia does, if, if it does get to them emotionally, uh, should consider that we're being propagandized by them at the same way that Voice of America is propagandizing Iranians. Um, and the reason why people in Iran would be receptive to the Voice of America network is because they're experiencing repression. And so I guess we have to ask ourselves, are we being repressed? And is that why we find RT's coverage to be valuable? That's a really excellent point. And I want to bring this up before I forget to. It's like I was saying this post by uh, a a man named Jay Pinho. I think it's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. Uh, Sorry if I'm slaughtering your name, if you're listening. Um, But he wrote this really, really great post um, about the sort of Abby Martin, Liz, Liz Wall, you know, comparison contrasts in the way they were treated. And so about that piece that Mr. James Kerchick wrote over at the Daily Beast, uh, James said things. So, um, so Jay, who authored this piece is talking about 
James Kirchick specifically and his piece. And so, uh, quote, Wall did a very brave thing, Kirchick concluded. Quote, unlike Abby Martin, another RT anchor who had expressed displeasure uh, at Russia's Crimea intervention two days prior, uh, that's in quotes, or that's in parentheses, who will continue to cash... So unlike Abby Martin, who will continue to cash Putin's paychecks, Wall is now out of a job. But that's the price real reporters, not Russian government-funded propagandists, have to pay if they are concerned with quaint notions like objectivity and truth, end quote. So that is what Kerchik says. And so back to Jay writing, he says, aside from the obvious absurdity of calling an American anchor working from Washington, D.C., brave for publicly denouncing the editorial decision-making process of her foreign employer, Kerchik's article failed to define what exactly differentiates real reporters from Russian government-funded propagandists. And this is the part that killed me, right? So he goes, this is especially surprising given Kerchik's own background as a reporter for a government-funded propaganda network. As a recent writer-at-large for Radio Free Europe, uh, do you know what Radio Free Europe is, Kevin? I mean, it'd be like Voice of America. Well, yeah, basically. uh, Except Radio Free Europe has an even longer sordid history uh because it was like started by uh alan dulles who went on to become uh-huh. the cia director but so he goes into basically kerchick like as, as recently as like 2011 or 2012 was writing for free radio europe for radio for europe which is literally like literally the same exact thing as what rt does here uh except except it might even be a little bit less i i don't know like but except from some of James's posts, it looks like uh, it was definitely very deceptive about a lot of things. And Jay brings that up, and I'll, I'll link to it in, like, my little write-up of the episode at my website. But, yeah, I just think that's, like, so funny, just the, the hypocrisy right there is uh, talking about RT, uh, people who work at RT, like, as these awful propagandists. When look where you worked not too long ago, you asshole. God. Ugh. Anyways. So there are... Just a couple things we want to quickly mention before we wrap up the episode. Um, I guess, do you do you want to briefly talk about your post, uh, your articles that you wrote? I don't need to talk about it for too long, but I just, I, you know, I encourage you to go read um, this part two of my, of mine and my, my colleague, uh, Adriana Maesta's piece at Electronic intifada about the Israel lobby courting Latinos. Uh, the first piece sort of laid out what it is that these pro-Israel organizations do, which is take uh, U.S. Um, Latinos on these sort of propaganda trips to Israel to get them to like Israel out of fear that they will otherwise relate more to Palestinians because Palestinians are involved in a struggle for equality against uh, settler colonialist uh, uh, nation. And it's very similar to what many Latinos, uh, it's very similar to, you know, Latin American history in terms of colonization, but also in terms of um, immigration and the way Latinos are treated in the United States, there's this fear that they will, like I said, relate to Palestinians. So uh, the second piece, which is up today, is called How Latino Activists Are Standing Up to the Israel Lobby. And it really, we basically speak to a lot, a bunch of activists, uh, Latino activists, community grassroots activists who are very much against what the Israel lobby is doing and they're trying to push back against it uh, in a lot of really, really cool ways. And um, so, yeah, I really encourage you to go check it out. Uh, it's very, it's a very intersectional uh, kind of piece that makes a lot of connections, which is what I love to write about. So go check it out. 
Uh, I'll also include that in a link at my website. And yeah, we can just we can move on to the, what we wanted to talk about next, um, which I believe we had wanted to mention Medea Benjamin. Uh, well, I guess I, let's let's like, we can wrap on this story and we'll come back to okay. uh, the other stuff later. Okay. Uh, but so Medea Benjamin was uh, detained at Cairo Airport. And I guess you you can set up what she was doing. She was coming over there for an international Women's Day demonstration. Mm-hmm. That's right. To Gaza, she was. They were. I think it was like a hundred women were going to try to get into Gaza, uh, which is under uh, siege, under military siege by air, land, and sea, uh, and it shares a border with Egypt. So Egypt helps enforce that and has even, especially with the military. Uh, coup government that's in charge now has gone even further in helping Israel uh, block Gaza off from the outside world. Um, so, yeah, so Medea was and several other women who were going to be a part of this were pulled out of line at the airport in Cairo and detained. And Medea was uh, apparently brutalized uh, by two guards who ultimately ended up, uh, I think, dislocating her shoulder and tearing one of her ligaments in her arm and like stomping on her back. And they deported her to Turkey, uh, even though medical staff at the airport said that she was in no shape to travel. Uh, they deported her anyways. They put her on this plane to Turkey. I, well, and also, the, I'm sorry, it was the medical staff on the Turkish airline or, uh, who said that, that, she, that she was in no shape to travel, but they forced their way on anyways. And on the flight, this was kind of creepy, on the flight, the two guards who brutalized her and dislocated her arm, she was basically, sit, she, she was forced to sit in between them on the flight. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the big story here is that also, not only is this awful, but the U.S. State Department apparently did not help whatsoever. Yeah, so some details, and I've been talking to uh, this former State, Depart empl- State Department employee and a, and a whistleblower, although um, we'll ignore his story uh, for the time being, because we don't have time. And just to say that uh, he's been giving me some insight on what he had to deal with when he was working in the State Department. And as as kind of like an expert witness here, what were the procedures that people at the State Department should have followed? Because Medea Benjamin is a U.S. citizen, and uh, the U.S. State Department has some kind of a responsibility to people who are abroad. So I guess first, just to, to quickly note that the State Department is saying that she needs to sign a Privacy Act waiver in order to have them speak and, and answer questions when media are asking about how they handled her uh, when she was detained in the Cairo airport. Like, what kind of assistance were they offering? Because they can't give specifics right now. That's their story. And and Peter has uh, told me that uh, arrests are considered public matters and should not be subject to the Privacy Act but often, as a sort of you know way of like covering their asses here, they're requiring one anyway. So this is just sort of uh, an easy way for the State Department to say that they're not going to give any comment, which makes it easy for them to not have to confront the fact that they may not have handled this appropriately. Uh, and then, uh, just to you know to make clear that there's um, a lot of uh, there's a range of different things that the State Department could do for a person in. Uh, who, who was detained in Egypt. But this is sort of like uh, a product of our own making here, of, of us having policies here in the United States where we detain people and hold them for 
undefined periods, whether they be short or, or long. And in Egypt, the government had detained her and then was in the process of deporting. And, and until uh, that process resolved, um, there may have been some limitation to how the State Department could get access to her as Egyptian government was handling that. But regardless, the U.S. State Department had an obligation to try to do something for her. Um, yeah, exactly. I completely agree. I, I uh, Not to go back to this, I know we, we sort of closed the door on this, but I just thought this was interesting. It looks like, I, I, I just, I see this post um, on Facebook from Abby uh, about her appearance on um, on uh, on Piers last night. And so she links to it and says, instead of throwing my work and fellow colleagues under the bus on the nightly news, I went on Piers Morgan and slammed corporate media. So I guess, <laughs> I guess that's out in the open. <laughs> well, so to, to wrap up the, the show here, I just want to say that each week I would like to send out some sort of an invitation for people to suggest what we would talk about on the show. And we did this from our official show account, the Unauthorized uh, Dis uh, Twitter account, and said what would you like us to talk about? And we had a few people, um, we had a person suggest that we talk about the Pentagon's assessment of what climate change will do for terrorism. That's noted. We'll, we'll, we'll think about covering climate change in some more detail in future shows. Uh, someone that suggested we talk about the Central African Republic crisis. Definitely. We're trying to find somebody who could give us some really good insight and maybe even do a detailed interview in the way that we did the interview with Ava Gollinger on uh, Venezuela last week. Uh, and then other, another person suggested we talk about RT, which we, we did at length. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I love this. I love being able to get, you know, the, uh, this kind of feedback from listeners. And uh, we're definitely interested in uh, and you guys, you know, throwing out ideas for what you'd like to hear us talk about. Um, I think Kevin said it best. You were only as good as our listeners, right? Or something like that. Did I get it? Yeah, right? we're, we're only as good as our <laughs> listeners. And uh, we've been get consistently getting a thousand listeners each week. Uh, we are up on iTunes. We're, we're, we're getting the hang of this and starting to do this like people who are serious about doing a weekly podcast. Uh, there, there may be some things that we have to work out, like people who aren't using iTunes and they want uh, some special feeds so that they can still listen to our podcast. Uh, if I can, I'll figure out how to make that work. And, uh, you know, we're up on social media and we have our Tumblr and we're very glad with the success that we've had so far. So I guess I would just say the last thing I have to say, which is thank you for listening. Yep. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.